Chapter Twenty Three of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Three. It was an incoherent tale that Thor stammered out to Lois as he and she walked homeward. By trying to tell Claude's story without including his own, he was, for the first time since the days of schoolboy escapades, making a deliberate attempt at prevarication. He suppressed certain facts, and over-emphasized others. He did it with a sense of humiliation which became acute when he began to suspect that he was not deceiving her. She walked on, saying nothing at all. Now and then, when he ventured to glance at her in profile, she turned to give him a sick, sad smile that seemed to draw its sweetness from the futility of his efforts. "'My God, she knows!' were the words actually in his mind, when he went floundering on with the explanation of why he couldn't allow Claude to be a cad. And yet, except for those smiles of an elusiveness beyond him, she betrayed no hint of being stricken in the way he was afraid of. On the contrary, she seemed, when she spoke, to be giving her mind entirely to the course of Claude's romance. "'He won't marry her. He'll marry Elsie Darling.' An hour ago the assertion would have angered him, now he was relieved that she had the spirit to make it at all. He endeavoured to imitate her tone. "'What makes you think so?' "'I know, Claude. She's the sort of girl for him to marry. There's good in him, and she'll bring it out.' "'Unfortunately, it's too late to think of Claude's good when he's pledged to someone else.' "'Would you make him marry her?' "'I'd make him do his duty.' She gave him another of those faint smiles of which the real meaning baffled him. I wouldn't lay too much stress on that, if I were you. To marry for the sake of doing one's duty is—she faltered an instant, but recovered herself—is as likely as not to defeat its own ends. He was afraid to pursue the topic, lest she speak more plainly. On arriving home he was glad to see her go to her room and shut the door. It grieved him to think that she might be brooding in silence, but even that was better than speech. As Uncle Sim and Cousin Amy Dawes were coming to Sunday night supper, the evening would be safe, and to avoid being face to face with her in the meanwhile, he went out again. Having passed an hour in his office, he strolled up into the wood above the village, his refuge from boyhood onward in any hour of trouble. There was space here, and air, and solitude. It was a diversion that was almost a form of consolation to be in touch with the wood's teeming life. Moreover, the trees, with their stately aloofness from mortal cares, their strifelessness and strength, shed on him a kind of benediction. From long association, from days of birds-nesting in spring, and camping in summer, and nutting in autumn, and snowshoeing in winter, he knew them as almost individual personalities—the great white oaks, the paper birches, the white pines with knots that were masses of dry resin, the Canada balsams with odorous boughs, the sugar-maples, the silver-maples, the beeches, the junipers, the hemlocks, the hackmatacks, with the low-growing hickories, witch-hazels, and slippery elms. Their green was the green of early May, yellow-green, red-green, bronze-green, brown-green, but nowhere, as yet, the full, rich hue of summer. Here and there a choke-cherry in full bloom swayed and shivered like a wraith. In shady places the ferns were unfolding in company with Solomon's seal, wake-robin, the lady slipper, and the painted trillium. There was an abundance of yellow. Sinkfoil, crowfoot, ragwort, bellwort, 
and shy patches of gold-coloured violets. In the sloping outskirts of the wood he stood still and breathed deeply, a portion of his cares and difficulties slipping from his shoulders. Somewhere within him was the sense of kinship with the wilderness that had become atavistic in Americans of six or eight generations on the soil. It was like skipping two centuries and getting back where life was primitive from necessity. There were few, if any, complications here, nor were there subtleties to consider. As far back as he knew anything of his Thorley ancestors, they had hewed and hacked and delved and tilled on and about this hillside, getting their changes from its seasons, their food from its products, their science from its bird-life and beast-life, their arts and their simples, their dyes and their drinks, from its roots and juices. To the extent that men and the primeval could be one, they had been one with the forest of which nothing but this upland sweep remained, treating it as both friend and enemy. As enemy they had felt it, as friend they had lived its life and loved it, transmitting their love to this son, who was now bringing his heartaches, as he was accustomed also to bring his joys, where they had brought their own. The advantage of the woods to Thor was that once within its shadows he could, to some degree, stop thinking of the life outside. He could give his first attention to the sounds and phenomena about him. As he stood now, listening to the resonant tapping of a hairy woodpecker on a dead tree-trunk, he could forget that the world held a Lois, a Rosie, and a Claude, each a storm-centre of emotions. It was a respite from emotions, in a measure a respite from himself. He stepped craftily, following the sound of the woodpecker's tap, till he had the satisfaction of seeing a black-and-white back with a red band across the busily bobbing head. He stopped again to watch a chipmunk who was more sharply watching him. The little fellow, red-brown and striped, sat cocked on a stone, his forepaws crossed on his white breast like the hands of a meek saint at prayer. Straining on again, he paused from time to time to listen to a robin singing right overhead, or to catch the liquid spiritual chant of a hermit-thrush in some stiller thicket of the wood, or to watch a bluebird fly directly into its nest, probably an abandoned woodpecker's hole, in a decaying Norway pine. These small happenings soothed him. Sauntering and pausing, he came up to the high treeless ridge he had last visited on the day he asked Lois to marry him. The ridge broke sharply downward to a stretch of undulating farms, Patches of green meadowland were interspersed with the broad red fields in which as yet nothing had begun to grow. Had it not been Sunday, the farmers would have been at work, ploughing, sowing, harrowing. As it was, the landscape enjoyed a rich Sabbath peace, broken only by the swooping of birds, out of the invisible, across the line of sight, and on into the invisible again. It was all beauty and promise of beauty, wealth and promise of wealth. The cherry-trees were in bloom, the pear and the apple and the quince would follow soon. Above the farmer-houses tall elms rose, fan-shaped and garlanded. The very charm of the prospect called up those questions he'd been trying for a minute to shelve. How was it that in a land of milk and honey men were finding it so hard to live? How was it that with conditions in which every man might have enough and to spare, making it his aim to see that his fellow had the same— there could be greed and ingenious oppression and social crime, with a menace of things graver still. "'What's the matter with us?' he asked, helplessly. 
Was it something wrong with the American people? Or was it something wrong with the whole human race? Or was it a condition of permanent strife that the human race could never escape from? Was man a being capable of high spiritual attainment, as he had heard in the church that morning? Or was he no better than the ruthless creatures of the woodland, where the weasel preyed on the chipmunk, and the owl on the mouse, and the fox on the rabbit, and the shrike on the phoebe, and the phoebe on the insect, in an endless round of ferocity? Had man emerged above this estate? Or was it as foolish to expect him to spare his brother man as to ask a hawk to spare a hen? These questions bore on Thor's immediate thoughts and conduct. They bore on his relations with his father, and Claude, and Lois. Through the social web in which he found himself involved, they bore on Rosie Fay. And from the social web they worked out to the great national ideals in which he longed to see his native land a sanctuary for mankind. But could man build a sanctuary? Would he know how to make use of one? Or was he, Thor Masterman, but repeating the error of that great-grandfather who had turned to America for the salvation of the race, and died broken-hearted, because its people were only looking out for number one. Because he couldn't find answers to these questions for himself, he tried, during supper, to sound Uncle Sim, leading up to the subject by an adroit indirectness. "'Been to church,' he said, after serving Cousin Amy Dawes with lobster a la Newberg. "'Oh, yeah.' came from Uncle Sim. "'Did you? What were you doing there? Thought you were a disciple of old Hilary.' Oh, "'That was the reason. Hilary's idea. Can't get round to the different churches himself, so he sends me. Look in on them all.' "'There's too much sherry in this lobster a la Newburgh,' Cousin Amy Dawes said sternly. "'I bet she's put in two tablespoonfuls instead of one.' Being stone-deaf, Cousin Amy Dawes took no part in conversation except what she herself could contribute. She was a dignified woman who had the air of being hewn in granite. There was nothing soft about her but three detachable corkscrew curls on each side of an immobile face, and a heart that everyone knew to be as maternal as milk. Dressed in stiff black silk, a heavy gold chain around her neck, and a huge gold brooch at her throat, and wearing fingerless black silk mittens, she might have walked out of an old daguerreotype. "'I should think,' Thor observed dryly, "'that you'd find your religion growing rather composite.' "'There, tell the way round. Grow simpler. Get their coordinating principle, a common denominator that goes into them all.' "'That is,' Lois said, in the endeavour to be free to think her own thoughts by keeping me on a hobby, "'you look for their points of contact rather than their differences.' "'Oh, uh, you get beyond the differences. Beyond these voices there is peace. Doesn't someone say that? Well, you get there. If you can stand the clamour of the voices for a while, you emerge into a kind of still place where they blend into one. Then you find they're all trying to say the same thing, which is also the thing you're trying to say yourself.' As he sat back in his chair, twisting his wiry moustache with a handsome, sunburnt hand, Thor felt that he had him where he had been hoping to get him. But what? "'Do we want to say, Uncle Sim? "'What do you want to say, and what do I?' "'The old man held his sharp-pointed beard by the tip, "'eyeing his nephew obliquely. "'That's the great secret, Thor. "'All like little babies, "'from the time they begin to hear language, "'are bursting with the desire to say something, "'and they don't know what it is till they learn to speak. "'Then it comes to them. "'Yes, but what comes to them? "'Is it what comes to all babies?' 
the instinct to say, Abba, father. Say, Lois, cousin Amy Dawes requested in her loud, commanding voice, just save me a mite of this cold duck for old Sally Gibbs. It'll be tasty for the poor soul. I'll take it to her as we go up the hill. What do you pay your cook? Without waiting for an answer, she continued like an oracle. I don't believe she's worth it. Thor leaned across the table. What I want to know is this. Suppose the instinct to say, Abba, father, does come to us. Is there anything there to respond that will show us a better way? Personally and nationally, I mean, than the rather poor one we are finding for ourselves? Can't give you any guarantees, Thor, if that's what you're after. Just got to say, Abba, father, and see for yourself. Nothing but seeing for oneself is any good when it comes to the personal. Oh, and as for the national... Well, there was a man once who went stalking up the land, crying, O Israel, turn thee to the Lord thy God. And I guess he knew what he was about. It was, Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye die? They didn't turn, and so they died. Inevitable consequence. Same with this people or any other people. In proportion as it turns to the Lord, its God, it'll live. And in proportion as it doesn't, it'll get a pot. He veered around to Lois as to one who would agree with him. "'Ain't that it?' She responded with a sweet, absent smile, which showed to Thor, at least, that her thoughts were elsewhere. As a matter of fact, Thor's questions and Uncle Sim's replies, which continued in more or less the same strain, lay in a realm with regard to which she had few misgivings or anxieties. Her heart-searchings being of another nature, she was doing in thought what she had done when in the afternoon she had gone to her room and shut the door. She was standing before her mirror, contrasting the image reflected there with rosy Fay's worn, touching prettiness. How awesome, how incredible, that Thor, her great noble Thor, should have let his heart go, perhaps the very best of his heart, to anything so insignificant, so unformed, so unequal to himself. It was this awesomeness, this incredibility, that overwhelmed her. Her mind fixed itself on it for the time being, to the exclusion of other considerations. Thor was like meaner men. He could be caught by a pretty face. He was so big in body and soul that she had thought him free from petty failing. And yet here it was. For there was a kind of shame in it. It weakened him. It lowered him. She had seen it from the minute when he began to tell his halting tale about Claude. It was pitiful the way in which he had betrayed himself. From Fay she got no more than a hint, a hint she had been quick to collate with her knowledge of some secret grief on Thor's part. But she hadn't been really sure of the truth till she saw he was trying to hide it. That Thor should be trying to hide anything made her burn inwardly with something more poignant than humiliation. She had smiled when he looked so imploringly toward her, but she hardly knew why. Perhaps it was to encourage him, to give him heart. For the first time in her life she felt the stronger, the superior. She was sorry for him, even though there was something about this new and unexpected phase in him that she despised. She got no further than that when the guests came and she had to give them her attention. When they left, and Thor was seeing them to the door, she took the opportunity to slip up to her room again. She locked the door behind her, and locked the door that communicated with his dressing-room. Once more she took her stand before the pier-glass. Something had come to her. She was sure of it. It had come almost since the afternoon. 
If it was not beauty, it rendered beauty of no importance. It was a spirit, a fire, that made her a woman who could be proud, a woman a man might be proud of. She had come to her own at last. She could see for herself that there was a subdued splendour about her which raised her in the scale of personality. She had little vanity. Hitherto she had had little pride. But she knew now, with an assurance which it would have been hypocritical to disguise, that she was the true mate of the man she had taken Thor to be. She had known it before, diffidently and apologetically. She knew it now calmly and as a matter of course, in a manner that did away with any necessity for shrinking or self-deprecation. She moved away from the mirror, taking off the string of small pearls she wore and throwing them on the dressing-table. In the middle of the room she stood with a feeling of helplessness. It was so difficult to see what she ought to do. What was one's duty toward a husband who had practically told her that he had married her only because he couldn't marry a woman he loved better? Other questions began to rise within her, questions and protests and flashes of indignation. But she beat them back, standing in an attitude of reflection and trying to discern the first steps of her way. She knew that the emotions she was keeping under would assert themselves in time. But just now she wanted only to see what she ought to do during the next half-hour. There came into her mind what Uncle Sim had said at supper. "'Just got to say, Abba, Father!' and see. She shook her head. She couldn't say, Abba, father, at present. She didn't know why, but she couldn't. Whatever the passion within her, it was nothing she could bring before a throne of grace. It crossed her mind that if she prayed at all that night, she would pass this whole matter over. And in that case, why pray at all? And yet the thought of omitting her prayers disturbed her. If she did it to-night, why not to-morrow night? And if to-morrow night, where would it end? It was not a convincing argument, but it drew her toward her bedside. Even then she didn't kneel down, but clung to one of the tall, fluted posts that supported a canopy. She couldn't pray. She didn't know what to pray for. Conventional petitions would have had no meaning, and for the moment she had no others to offer up. It was but half-consciously that she found herself stammering, "'Abba, father! Abba, father!' her lips moving dumbly to the syllables. It brought her no relief. It gave her neither immediate light on her way, nor any new sense of power. She was as dazed as ever, and as an indignant. And yet, when she raised herself from the weary clinging to the fluted posts, she went to both the doors she had locked, and unlocked them. End of chapter 23